I have sort of a, a morbid question to ask as we jump into our time of preaching this morning. Have you ever thought about what your last words would be? Have you ever thought about what you would say with your last breath on this planet? Or maybe your last words at your job. Hopefully they wouldn't be inappropriate words as you walk out the door into uh, retirement. But as you transition from this life into the next, have you ever thought about what you would say to your family or your friends if you were given that opportunity? You know, I've been fascinated um, with last words. There have been some great last words spoken in the history of the world. And, and what makes them so fascinating is it gives you insight into what that person is thinking as they are preparing to leave this world, as they consider the culmination of the entirety of their life. I have a few of them this morning I want to just to, to draw your attention to. The first one is uh, the first last word phrase is a guy from a guy named Archimedes. I have a picture of him up here. He was a famous Greek mathematician. And during the, the Second Punic War, he was told to leave his place of study to go with a soldier into captivity, and he refused to leave before finishing one of his very complicated equations. And as the soldier was coming to him to force him, he says to him, his last words, stand away, fellow, from my diagram. And then he's killed. Interesting. A mathematician defending his diagram with his very last breath. Augustus Caesar, to his subjects before he died, seems rather appropriate for this time of year, he said to the people who he ruled, I found Rome of clay, I leave it to you of marble. Thinking about his legacy, right? But to his friends who were directly with him, he said to them, have I played the part well? Then applaud me as I exit. Interesting. Declaring his legacy on one hand, questioning his legacy on the other, because for a Roman emperor, glory, name, was all you had to live for. Leonardo da Vinci, one of the most famous art artists and inventors in the history of mankind, said in his last breaths, I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. What a shame to have lived your whole life to create art and at the end of it think that you have failed in what you have given your life to. Nostradamus, French apothecary, a soothsayer, fortune teller, he said, or he made one last correct prediction when on the eve of his death he said, you will not find me alive at sunrise. Turned out to be true. Of all the things that you, he predicted, at least that one came true. It's, it's interesting when you think about these final sayings of human beings, their last words, how revealing they truly are. How much they say about the focus of an individual's life as they contemplate what it is that they've given their life to. And today, we have the privilege of looking at the last words of King David. So we draw our series to an end in the life of David. We're going to look at the final things that he said to his people. Now, these are not on his deathbed, we don't think, but they are certainly the last words that were recorded to the people that he has been leading. And we find them in 2 Samuel chapter 23. First seven verses of 2 Samuel 23. Here's what the word of God says. Now, these are the last words of David, the oracle of David. 
the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said this to me. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For he will not cause to prosper all my help and my desire. But worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. So what is David thinking about? And the last words that he has to offer his people and to us, what's he focusing on? What does he want his people to remember? Directly from his mouth. Well, I think there are, are three specific areas of focus for David. As he utters these last words. Firstly, he's thinking about how far God has brought him. He's communicating to those around him how far God has brought him. Look at verse 1 again. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse. As David prepares to die, he thinks about where he began. He thinks about the reality that, that he was a, a shepherd, a son of Jesse, a boy born to a seemingly unimportant family in a seemingly unimportant town. His father was so unimportant that some would make fun of him because of who his dad was. Saul and a guy named Nabal both made fun of David for being a son of of Jesse because they thought it should bring him shame that his family was so insignificant that his family was so unimportant but at the end of his life David doesn't look upon this declaration this this reminder of who his dad is his earthly father is as a moment of shame rather he sees it as a moment to reflect on the goodness of God he sees it as a moment to celebrate the mighty action of God in his life. It is true that David was a nobody, but God plucked him from his shepherding duties and made him somebody. Not because of any worth that he possessed in and of himself, but all because of the glory of God who raised him on high. David is thinking about his life. He's overwhelmed by the grace and the mercy, the goodness that God has shown to him, to, to look on him with so much favor when he did not deserve the favor of God. And this is not unlike the story of Israel, right? In fact, I think David is using this moment of reflection on his life to remind the people of Israel about a truth of their existence. And his final words to the people of Israel his journey in many ways is meant to be a reminder of their own. In the same way that God took David, who was nothing, 
and made him something. He did the same thing with the people of Israel. They weren't a people at all until God made a covenant with Abraham. He formed them in the midst of slavery in Egypt. He carried them into the land of promise. He gave them the law. He covenanted with them. He made them powerful and raised them on high. And not because they were the greatest, but precisely because they were not. Precisely because they were the weakest, so that through them, God's glory could be shown. See, there were times in David's life where he forgot where all this blessing that God had given him came from. And he knows that Israel has suffered from the same fate. There are times in the history of Israel where they had forgotten where they came from and they began to feel entitled to all the blessings that God had freely given to them. And so he wants to remind them, don't forget where you came from. Don't forget who brought you here. Don't forget who has blessed you immensely because what God has given you, he can take away. I know that firsthand in my life. I have, I have suffered because I have forgotten where all this blessing comes from. And here's I sit back, I'm, I'm marveling at all that God has done in my life. Don't forget as I did. Don't walk away from the one who has made you into something for his glory, from the one who continually blesses you. At the end of his life, David gives thanks. He gives thanks for the one who has blessed him so incredibly, and he encourages his people to do the same. Everything they have, everything they have, the land, the power, the influence at this moment in their history is a gracious gift from God given to them by his own hand. So he, he reflects on how far God has brought him in order to remind the people of God how far he has brought Secondly, David is thinking about all that God has taught him. In verses two to four, David gives us a, a glimpse of some revelation that he has received directly from God and specifically about what it means to be a good king. Let's look at verses two to four again. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the, morning's light, like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. God has shown David that when one rules justly over men. When one rules in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass sprout up from the earth. Think about the imagery of this language here that David is using. A good king is liberating. A good king is liberating. He brings freedom. He offers a promise of something new, something good. And when you have been under a bad king, when you've lived in oppression, when you've lived in fear, when you have lived in the middle of the night for so long, a good king is a breath of fresh air. When you feel the release of that oppression, a good king is life-giving. 
He works for the good of his people. And all that he does, he is working so that his people will prosper, have something better. He wants to see his people have good. He wants to see them better. He doesn't just work for himself. A good king is comforting. You can trust in his decisions because he's just and he's righteous. You don't have to to worry about the whole kingdom falling apart because he woke up on the wrong side of the bed that day or he ate some bad goat last night. And so all of a sudden his wrath is falling down upon the people of God. No, he is a steady king. He brings comfort and peace to his people. This is what a good king does. David's also learned a little, about, a little bit about what it means to be a bad king. We see these in, this in verses 6 and 7. Worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches him or them arms himself with iron, the shaft of a spear. They are utterly consumed with fire. Bad kings are destructive, and they destroy anyone who touches them. They offer something very different to their people. Oppression, fear, and want. They take life rather than give life. They are only concerned with their good, not the good of their people. When a ruler does not rule in the fear of God, then God will remind him and all the people who is really in charge. He didn't give this power and authority that to them to abuse for their own purpose. No, everything is meant to be for his glory. David has learned both of these things, what it means to be a good king and what it means to be a bad king because he's been both. As we've seen over our study of his life, while mostly he was a good king, there were certainly times when he was a bad king. There are certainly times where the people who were under his rule were not benefited because he was only looking out for himself. In fact, they lost their life instead of being given better life. And he's offering wisdom to future kings here. And he's offering wisdom to the people of God here about what kind of king they should be seeking. He's encouraging them to look for a king like this, a a king who brings liberation, a a king who brings freedom, a king who is fully life-giving, a king who will bring you comfort. And finally, David is thinking about all that God has promised him. Verse five, David looks back on a covenant that God made with him way back in 2 Samuel chapter seven. And look at what God promises him in chapter seven, verses eight to 16. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant, David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep that you should be prince over all the people of Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut up all of your enemies from before you. And I make for you a a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. A violent man shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all of your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. 
When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him as a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And at the end of his life, David is clinging to this promise. He is clinging to this covenant that his lineage, his kingdom will last forever. He says in verse five, does not my house stand so with God? He has made me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desires? God has promised David that he will establish his throne forever. And this brings David comfort to know that his legacy will continue. His kingdom will be upheld. Why? Because it wasn't about David to begin with. It was about God. And God will remain steadfast to his promises to his people and to David. God established this throne and he will sustain it. It's a humbling moment for David as he ends his life. A realization that as strong a king as he has been, ultimately it has not been his hand that has held the kingdom of Israel together. It is God's. And even when he's gone, that kingdom will continue. Here's the question though. As we consider these last words of David, a challenge from one king to all kings who would come after him, a challenge to the people that he has ruled. Will the kings that follow David listen? Will they listen to his wise words? Will they, will they rule in a better way than David did? Will they to seek to be completely what David was not? Did they take his last words to heart? Tragically, if you've read the Old Testament, you know the answer to this, because the kings that follow David, for the most part, do not. They don't heed his words. Solomon begins well, ruling in wisdom, but before long, he ultimately leads the people of God astray. His sons divide the kingdom and their sons lead the people of God into judgment. And while there are occasionally some good kings, on the whole, as you read the history of both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, the majority of the kings were evil, wicked in the sight of the Lord. There's a list of some in 1 Kings 16. They were idolatrous. They led the people of God to worship foreign gods, false gods, rather than the one true God who created them in the first place. These kings ultimately did not bring life, but rather death. These kings did not bring freedom, but rather they brought oppression. They did not bring comfort to the people of God. Rather, they brought condemnation. And as we read First and Second Kings and all the prophets who were appointed to, to call out the people's sin, to, to reveal the folly of where these kings are leading their people, we begin to ask a question, where is this king? Where is the king 
like the one described in 2 Samuel 23. Where is the better David? Where is the king who will rule justly over men, who will rule in the fear of God, who dawns on his people like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout upon the earth? Where is the true and good king who would sit on the throne of David as God promised, uniting his people, not dividing them and leading them in to greater blessings? The prophets long for this king. They write of this king often. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7 that we read earlier today. God comforting his people through the prophet Isaiah. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. Does that sound familiar? You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. They are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in a battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Why? Because unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name, this new king, will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Isaiah clearly longing for the king that David describes in 2 Samuel 23. Micah joins him. Micah chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us with a rod. They strike the judge of Israel in the cheek. But you... O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand, and he shall shepherd his flock in the street of the Lord." and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. They shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. This king, this good king, who will undo all that the wicked kings have done. The people of God are longing for this, this shepherd king who will take the throne of David, who will dawn on them like a morning sun, who will bring an end to all of their darkness. Their longing echoes the longing of all creation. And we waited. They waited for a very long time until the heavens opened in Luke chapter 1. Look with me at Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 33. 
In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent to God in the city of Galilee, sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of whom? David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled. I think all of us would be greatly troubled in a moment like that. And tried to discern what sort of greeting this may be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and you will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And listen, of his kingdom, there will be no end. In that moment, the promise given to David was fulfilled. In that moment, the promised king of 2 Samuel 23, the promised king, the, the one who in every way would be everything that David was not, he would be greater than David, shone forth upon the earth. The long-awaited king had arrived in his name is Jesus, shepherd king, who would care for the people of God. He will be a good king and bring God's people back into his blessing. Why? Because he will set them free. He will release them from their oppression against a greater enemy, this king, Jesus not just against Philistine threats, not just against other warring nations' threats, but against the, the greatest threat that humanity has ever known, the threats of sin and death and our enemy, Satan. God will defeat them in Christ. Jesus will set us free from this bondage, from this darkness, from this oppression that we live in. Only he could do it. The work was too great for any man because every single man who tried before was captive to the very same things that all of us are captive to. No, it required someone greater. And that's why Jesus came. This king will give his people life. He will work for their good, for their benefit. His glory, yes, but he will be a selfless king who will sacrifice greatly for their benefit. When his people deserve death, for their rebellion, when his people deserve death, for their rejection of God, he does not give them what they deserve. Rather, he takes that death upon himself. That's a good king, friends. He's a king who will bring his people eternal comfort. He's an unchanging king who is eternally righteous and just. He will tell you how you can know where you will stand before him. And once he has made a decree of righteousness over you, having repented and believed in him for salvation, he will never change his mind. You can know for sure where you stand before this king. So today, and every day until the day that this king returns, because of God's gracious work in Christ, we can Think about the end of our lives in the same way that David thought about his. Today, we can think about how far God has brought us because of the work of King Jesus. We can recognize that we were nothing, 
that we were dead in our trespasses, that we were separated for all of eternity from a holy and righteous God, and there was nothing in us, nothing in us, that should make God act so graciously and mercifully toward us, and yet he did. He took us from a nowhere family, a nowhere town, and he has taken us through the work of Christ and made us sons and daughters of a king. How incredible. If you were in Christ, do you recognize how far God reached to grab you in your sin? Do you realize there was nothing you could have done on your own to find salvation? And yet, God looked upon you lovingly, sending his son to give you everything that you needed. How far off we were and now how close we are because of the work of Jesus. We can think about how far God has brought us and rejoice in that. We can also think about all that God has taught us through the work of Jesus, all that he has revealed to us about himself, his greatness, his glory, everything that God is we see on the cross. We see his righteousness, his holiness, we see his justice, we see his mercy, we see his grace all unfolding in one incredible eternity-altering act in Christ. God has revealed himself so incredibly through the work of Jesus. We also can think about what he's revealed about us and our need through the work of Christ. There's no human being that could save us from what we needed saving from. It took God taking on flesh to accomplish this. And because of that, we can rejoice He has shown us in Jesus his divine plan to reconcile all things to himself. He has declared to us our need and he has declared to us his sufficiency to meet that need. All through the work and coming of Jesus, a greater king. And we can reflect upon that even to our dying breath, what God has taught us through the work of his son. And finally, we can Think about what God has promised us and rest in the comfort of his promises to us in Christ. One day, all that ails us, all the suffering and hardship and brokenness that we have experienced in this world will come to an end. And when we're sitting there in our deathbed and we're wondering about our life, we can know that there is a hope of something better on the other side. We can know that while death may have victory in this moment, it does not have the final victory. That while sin may have led to some momentary afflictions on this side of heaven, it will not have the final say. While Satan may have won a battle, he has not won the war. And we can rest in the comfort that Christ who has been victorious before, will be victorious again and for all of eternity. Because this king will come again to show us once and for all that he is the promise of Revelation 22, verse 16, the root and descendant 
of David, the bright and morning star. And when he comes, the light will dawn upon us as of a new morning sun. Everything will be right, and of his reign, there will be no end. Of all the last words that could be spoken, Jesus will have the last one. His word will seal our fate. Here's my question for you this morning. Do you know King Jesus? Do you know King Jesus? If not, your last words may be consumed with purposelessness, with regret, with uncertainty. But if you are in the grip of Christ, if you know where you stand before God, then your last words will look very different, maybe just like David's. Recognizing that everything that has been done has been for his glory and your good and your eternity is sure. All because of a greater king who came to do for us what we could not do on our own. Do you know this king, Jesus? The greater David, who rules and reigns over us in perfect righteousness. This Christmas, let us be grateful that Jesus came so that we could be set free. This Christmas, let us be grateful that he came so that we could have life, abundant life here and eternal life forever. Let us be grateful that he came so that we could be comforted, that in the midst of all this brokenness, he will return and finish what he has begun. Wherever you are, would you bow your head? Spend some time before the Lord, asking him to help you know how to respond today. Have you been longing for Jesus? If you don't know him, you have been, whether you know it or not. Have you met him? Do you know him? Have you repented and believed in him for salvation? If not, what better way to celebrate Christmas than to take advantage of the gift that God has given you in Christ? I don't care how far you are. You're not beyond the reach of the work of Christ. Look at the life of David and consider the testimony of the people in this room. If you are in Christ, if you do know him, are you celebrating Christmas for the right reasons this year? Are you celebrating the reality that Jesus has come to reign over us in a way that David never could, to be that morning star, to be that breath of fresh air, to breathe that dawn of new hope. Through him, you have freedom. Through him, you have life. Through him, you have comfort. Freedom, life, and comfort that can be found in no one else. Will you celebrate this Christmas because of what God has given us and the coming of his son? Father, help us know how to respond. 
Find us faithful, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Brother Will.